All right, well, good morning. How are we doing? Good, good, good. Hey, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 21 this morning. 2 Kings chapter 21. And we are continuing in our reading through Unfolding Grace. Uh, this week, if, you're, um, if you bought the Unfolding Grace book, if you're going through the weekly readings with us, we'll be reading this week through 2 Kings 21 through 25. And the title of this section is Judah Exiled. Now, what I want to do as we begin uh, our time is just read through the introduction of this section because I think it's, it's actually really helpful in, in kind of catching us up or reorienting us to where we are in the story of God's work of redemption. And so here is the introduction to our reading this week. Again, this is uh, the introduction to 2 Kings 21 through 25. It says, the kingdom of Israel swiftly divides after Solomon's death. The ten northern tribes split from the two southern tribes. This creates two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel declines rapidly rather than following a Davidic king. It follows a succession of unfaithful kings. Rather than worshiping the Lord in the temple, the people worship idols and shrines. After 200 more years of God's astonishing patience, God eventually judges them with exile. The Assyrians conquer and carry many Israelites away in 722 BC. The southern kingdom of Judah also declines, but at a slower rate. The next narrative shows how God eventually uses the superpower Babylon to send Judah into exile in 586 BC. Exile means leaving the place of God's special presence and blessing. <clears throat> Israel's exile repeats Adam's original exile from Eden and pictures humanity's continuing exile from God. Ever since Adam's exile, every human is separated from God and is a stranger in this world. But there is hope. The God who rightly sends us out is the God who will one day bring us home through Jesus. Amen. So at this point uh, in Israel's history, the nation has been split. You've got the northern kingdom, Israel, which set up its capital city in Samaria. It's already been destroyed and carried off into exile by the Assyrians. And as the introduction mentions this week, we'll read about the southern kingdom, Judah, experiencing a similar form of God's judgment. Jerusalem will fall, the temple will be destroyed, and the Babylonians will carry the Israelites away as Israel endures the judgment of God or the wrath of God being poured out in part for their depravity, rebellion, and idolatry. Now, um, I wish I had the time to go through all five of our chapters for this week. I don't. So instead, like I said, we're going to camp out in 2 Kings 21, and we'll be answering the question that I think First and Second Kings are answering, which is why? Right, like First and Second Kings, um, in our Bibles it's two books, but really it's one continuous book, and it was written to the Israelites as they were living in exile, and you can imagine that they might have been asking the question in that time, is God really good? Like, is, is he good? Is God even real? Like, is he actually the one true God, the creator and ruler over all things? Or are there other gods more powerful than him, more beautiful than him, more worthy than him of our worship? Like, can we trust Yahweh? Should we trust Yahweh? And if so, like, why is all of this happening to us, his chosen people? 
In 2 Kings uh, chapter 21, verses 14 and 15, God answers the question this way. He says, I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. And so the answer to that question, why is all this happening is, well, like the problem itself isn't new. It's just that what we're going to see here in 21, specifically the king that we're going to read about in 21, Manasseh, uh, he serves as the catalyst that would eventually exhaust God's patience with the people of Judah. And that's what this week's reading is about. But before we dive into the text this morning, I want to show you a picture Here's the picture. Um, have anybody, like, has anybody seen or heard or been to this place? That place. <laughs> anybody? No? Good, this works for my illustration, that's great. Um, so this is called the Roofless Church. Um, it's a pretty sweet build, I mean, it's like, it's, it's cool. Like, it's a cool looking building. Um, it stands in New Harmony, Indiana. It was finished in the year 1960, and in this precious little town, this, the Roofless Church, it stands as a beacon of unity, diversity, inclusion, and it is intended to be a sort of utopian paradise, a utopian place of worship. And I can tell you from experience, like I I got to go here for a friend of mine in college, he actually got married here, him and his bride, and like I can just tell you firsthand, it's like it's beautiful. Like you're driving through this little town, this old historic town in New Harmony, Indiana. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's a cute little town. It's exactly what you'd expect. And then like in the middle of it, there's like a whole city block that just like is, is like marked off by red brick wall and like towering over the rest of the buildings is this, looks kind of like a beehive kind of thing, like just this dome and like, you stand up under it and you're like, this is crazy. Like the architecture, the design, the intricacy. I mean, it is beautiful. And not just the, that itself, but even the walls that surround or enclose the area, like they've got like these pictures and like scripture and like images like carved in to the walls. There's like this like gold plated, like, like just, it's crazy. Like it's crazy, crazy, crazy beautiful. And you've also got like the gardens like on the inside, like the, the grounds themselves are just like well manicured. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Now let me read to you the official description of this this space, this building. It reads as follows. The Roofless Church is an open-air cathedral which invites all faiths to worship under the only roof big enough to fit them all, the sky. Which sounds sweet, right? Now I don't know, like I don't know if reading that makes you feel some kind of way. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Like maybe there's something in you that you're kind of like, ooh, I don't know that I like that. Or maybe you're just like, I mean, who cares? It's a pretty building. Maybe you're, you're trying to, like in your mind, you're Bibling me and you're like, well, pastor, don't you know that Jesus said his people would worship in spirit and in truth? So who cares? Who cares what building they're in? They don't even need a building. We worship in spirit and truth. Maybe you're like, dude, that's a sick wedding venue. Good for your friend. I don't know what you're feeling <laughs> or thinking right now. I don't know. Now, let me give you a different thing, different scenario, Okay. 
Imagine next, next Sunday, we've gathered together as a church. We've worshiped in song. We've worshiped in the preaching of the word. We've worshiped in the Lord's table because it's the first Sunday. So we got to partake in communion. And it was just like, man, the spirit was present. And we're saying, I mean, it's just like, dude, oh, the Lord is in this place. And then Bobby and the rest of the elders, they came up and they stood before you and they said, hey, before we go, we have an announcement. Um, we've been praying as elders, just praying and fasting and asking the Lord to give us a vision for the future of this church. And we've decided today is the day to begin transitioning. Um, uh, like uh, we're going to change our name. First step, we're going to change our name from Hutto Bible Church to the Hutto House of Worship. And we just kind of feel like as we've been praying, we're sensing the Lord telling us to maybe open our minds, to open our hearts, to kind of open ourselves up to the possibility that maybe, just maybe, there are actually some other gods out there as beautiful and powerful as Jesus, and, and we should worship them, and we want to celebrate them, we want to honor them, not just like kind of out there, but in here. We just want to be open to that. We sense the Lord telling us to do that. And so next week, or you know what, starting tonight, we're going to be the Hutto Bible House of Worship. All faiths, all gods, all flavors of worship are welcomed and celebrated in this space and as Bobby and the elders are making this announcement you've got ushers walking in bringing in like little Buddha statues and placing them on the stage or walking in with like Qurans and placing them next to every single Bible in all of our facilities what if as Bobby's making this announcement someone comes in and hangs a pentagram right next to the cross on the back of the stage you feeling some kind of way you getting fired up like, is your soul crying out? Like, here's what I hope is happening. Before that announcement finishes, you're pulling out your phone and Googling churches near me. <laughs> that's what I hope you're doing. <clears throat> like, I hope in that moment, that's not going to happen, by the way. But if it were, in that moment, here's what I'm hoping, is you're Googling, for those who are, are, are familiar with our Bibles, I hope Exodus 20 is running through your mind, where the first three commandments that God gives are this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so for those who may be newer Bible readers or new Christians, what is God telling his people here about himself? I am jealous. Well, jealous, what's God jealous for? His glory. The glory that only he deserves. The glory that only he's worthy of. He is jealous for his name. The affection that is due to only him. Like, here's another thing. If you've ever wondered, and I'm sure we've all wondered this, if you've ever wondered, what's my purpose? Like, why was I made? What's my purpose? Why am I here? Well, I love the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It answers this question. It says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And can I just tell you, God knows that ain't happening if there are idols and statues and images filling up his house. He knows that ain't happening if there are idols and images that are stealing the attention and the affections of his people away from him. He knows that's not happening. And so with that in mind, we jump into 2 Kings. And this is, this is why Judah's being carried off into exile, starting in verse 1. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. 
His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah. As Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander anymore out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them. Uh, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And so Manasseh is reigning as the king of Judah. He's ascended to the throne following the death of his father, Hezekiah. And like when Israel split into two nations, both the north and south had 20 kings. Um, among the 20, Judah's one, I'm sorry, among the 20 of Judah, Hezekiah, he's one of the good guys, right? He honored the Lord. He obeyed the Lord. He went to great lengths to remove and destroy any trace of pagan idol worship in Jerusalem, but he's dead now, and his son is the king, and his, his son looks more like his grandfather than his father. Like his grandfather Ahab introduced the same pagan idol worship, pluralistic worship into the northern kingdom, and as a result, it yielded the same end, judgment, destruction, and exile, and while the text doesn't tell us how quickly these changes happened, it tells us that he reigned as king for 55 years. And so, 55 years, Manasseh's got a strong resume. It says that he rebuilt the high places, which were sites for pagan worship. He built altars to Baal, the god of the Canaanites. He made an Asherah, which is like a wooden idol of the Canaanite goddess of fertility. And then he placed that idol into the holy place in the temple. He worshiped the hosts of heaven, which is the stars, the moon, the, the astro, you know, spirits. He built altars to foreign gods in the temple. He built altars in the courts of the temple where the people of God would worship and gather. He burned his son as an offering and he used fortune telling, mediums and necromancers, all hinting to his dabblings with the occult. Every single one of these acts was a violation of God's law. Yes, Siri wanted to get in on the game. And the result of this wickedness was that the Israelites, a people whom God had redeemed for himself and a people whom he had called to be holy were in no way holy. Like they were called to be an example to the world around them, the nations around them of the power and superiority, the beauty of Yahweh, of his goodness and his character. They were meant to like point the world to, to God, and yet it says they were neither of these things. In fact, they were more pagan than the pagans. 
And not only were the people defiled, but the temple, the house of the Lord, which was meant to house the holy presence of God among his people in this city. It's now been tainted by the smell of idol worship. He failed to keep the Davidic covenant. He failed to observe the law. And he failed to keep the Mosaic covenant. He and his people. And the consequences would be dire for them. Like as one commentator put it, he said, God is patient, but he's not blind. Another one said, God can hardly be silent during such times. And so the text tells us that God speaks through the prophets and pronounces this judgment upon Judah. Starting in verse 11. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. They shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they've done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. So in essence, the Lord says, judgment's coming. Like as the Lord looks around at the state of his people, the state of this city that he chose, the state of his temple, he, he says, this is just too much. And so Judah, like the northern kingdom, will be wiped out like the scum that is scraped off of a dirty dinner plate. I mean, and you guys know that scum, right? Like it's just kind of sat there for too long and now you're like, God, get that. Like, just like that scum, they'll be wiped clean. He says the judgment will be so severe that it will send chills through the bodies of all who see it and hear of it. He says dark days are ahead of Judah and the Israelites. And here's the fun part. As you read this week in Unfolding Grace, you get to read about those dark days as they unfold. Like that's kind of where we're at in the story of Israel's history, the story of God's unfolding grace. And so 21 through 25 of 2 Kings is this judgment being pronounced. You've got like one more good king up in there, Josiah. But then after that, it just, it, it, it's, it's just chaos and destruction as the people of God are taken out of the city of God. So, what should we take away from this chapter? Well, this, I've got three things. Let's look at the first one. The first is this. The holiness of God must not be forgotten. So while this story is being written and told to a certain people in redemptive history, at a certain point in redemptive history, and so while this story is not written to us, it is nonetheless written for us, and it, so because of that, it does even still teach us about the character of God. And here's what we learn, that God is holy. He's beautifully, perfectly, utterly pure, that he alone is God. Like John in 1 John describes it this way, he says, he is light and in him is no darkness. No, no darkness at all. He has no sin. He hates all sin. And in his perfect righteousness, he assures us that all sin and unrighteousness will be punished. 
in full. Like Paul says in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice, Paul's not saying God's gonna pour out his wrath on sin. Who's his wrath aimed at? Sinners, people who suppress the truth. Why? Because he's holy because he is just, because any act of sin, big or small, internal or external, is an act of rebellion against God. It's an affront on his holiness. And and we don't do ourselves or anybody any favors if all we do is talk about the love of God and, and refuse to talk about the fact that he's holy and just and he has wrath. Now, here's where we get to take a breath. God is love. Like the Bible tells us that. It's, it's beautifully, wonderfully, gloriously true that God is love. Not just that he is loving. Not just that he has love. He in and of himself is love. He defines it. He makes it up. Father, Son, Holy Spirit for all eternity. The three, like the triune God. He is love. But because he's love, he also has wrath. I've heard another pastor say it this way, the more you love something, the more you are capable of wrath. And isn't that true? Like how many husbands in here, you can raise your hand if you want, you don't have to, but like how many husbands in here, if someone comes at your wife, you're about to do something terrible? Hopefully every single one of you. Like if someone came at your wife, there's gonna be some part of you that you didn't even know was there that just boxes open and you're gonna black out, something's gonna happen because they just came at you, like that wrath comes out, right? How many moms in here as sweet and gentle and, and gracious and kind, like, you know, you're just like the best, like how many moms in here, someone comes at your baby and you're gonna like come unhinged? <laughs> right? <laughs> Why? Because we, like the more love we have, the more capable we are of wrath. I mean, how many of us are ready to go to blows with someone if we even get the hint, the smell of them talking mess about us? They might have, they might not have. We don't know, but we think they might and we're ready to go to blows. Like if you're an aggressive person, you're like, oh, we're gonna take it outside. And if you're not an aggressive person, you're like, well, I'm gonna push that deep and it's gonna eventually come out and then I'm gonna become an aggressive person. Whatever, like I saw this video on Instagram the other day which shows how unsanctified I am that I watch a bunch of Instagram videos. But um, I saw this one of a guy who, you know, he's playing like this, it's hard to, it's, it's so stupid. He's like himself, but then he's also like supposed to be like an 11 year old version of himself or his son and so he's got a filter on, you know what I mean? You get, you know what I'm saying. So anyways, he's like having this conversation and his son that he's playing got in trouble at school and he's like, why'd you do it? Why'd you do it? Like what happened? Why'd you do it? And he's like, well, I hit her in the face with a kickball like 11 times because she kept saying to me, if being hot was a crime, you'd be guilty. And he's like looking at him like, and then you see him go, if being hot was a crime, then you'd be, oh, right? Like he finally, it clicks, oh, she was hitting on me. Um, but you know, the whole joke is that like, he thought she was throwing shade. And, and I mean, that, isn't that just like true? Like you, you think someone's coming at you and you're like something in you starts to swell because you love yourself and you're ready to fight. 
if that's the case, man, how much more righteous is God in whom there is no darkness to pour out his wrath against all ungodliness, all rebellion, all wickedness, and all sin? And, and we hate these messages because we want a God who's just cool with whatever, man. Like we want a God who's just gonna give us the green light, the thumbs up to do what we want with no repercussions. Like we want a God whose standards match our own standards. D.A. Carson in his book, The God Who Is There, describes this as the, the grand, grandfather, granddaddy God, right? Like just, we want our God to just be this old dude hanging out with a white beard who's just like, you're the best, who doesn't care. And the problem is, that's just not the God of the Bible. Which leads me to my second point, which is that sin must be dealt with openly, honestly, swiftly, and aggressively. Brothers and sisters, sin of all shapes and sizes, of all degrees and flavors, sin is an affront on the holiness of God and it's rebellion against his name. And I'm not just talking about the big boy sins that come to your mind that we're like, ooh, that stuff's bad. Like I'm talking about the stuff that, that's like in our hearts that we just kind of push into the closet, into the shadows, because we think it's no big deal. I'm talking about pride, selfishness, slander, gossip, apathy, laziness, gluttony, greed, drunkenness, lust. All of it is rebellion. And while it might be easy for us in this moment, because I know it's easy for me to be thinking about like, oh man, if only the, the people out there could hear this. Like our world needs this. Or if only my friend or my neighbor or my brother could hear this. Like we've got that going. Like that's our propensity. And I'm just, my call to you right now is start drawing a circle around yourself and asking the Holy Spirit to help you search the depths of your own heart to bring to the surface the sin that we've just been ignoring. And as he does, humble yourself before the Lord, recognize it as rebellion, and then kill it. Slay it, mercilessly, go after it. And don't do this alone, because some of y'all are. Like, don't do this alone. Invite brothers and sisters who love Jesus into your life to hold you accountable. Give them the freedom to watch your life, and when they see something happen, they get to come to you and say, hey, listen, um, I love you, and so that's why I'm coming to you, and I see this. And when they do, humble yourself before them and say, thank you for loving me enough to bring that to my attention. Help me kill it. And see, my fear is that some of us in this room think our sin is just something between us and the Lord. And so because it's just between us and the Lord, I'm gonna keep it back here in the shadows and no one's gonna know about it and I'm gonna push it down and it gnaws at your soul. Instead of bringing it to the light, we keep it in the shadows. While others, I'm afraid, I hope it's not true, but others I fear are so unaware of our own sin that if it hits you in the face or knocked on your front door, you wouldn't even see it. And then when you do... We just think, well, I don't really care enough to change. And so our humility shrinks and our self-righteousness grows and we presume upon the grace of God as we just continue to walk in our sins. And to that, Paul would say, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We slay our sin. We walk in newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit as we experience God's grace, which gets to my third and favorite point, God's grace abounds. 
Like if you've been tracking along with us in this series, maybe what's coming to your mind is the promise that God made to King David a few weeks ago. We've talked about it a lot because it's like a hot spot in the Bible. Like you, that covenantal promise that God made to David is essential for understanding the rest of the Bible. And so if you um, recall, God made a promise to King David that he would establish for him a house, that he would give him a son who would sit on his throne and his throne would last forever, right? Well, if you're thinking, did God change his mind? I mean, Israel is like gone, gone. Like they're just like out. So what, like, did God change his mind? Like Israel at that point in history was probably going, did God change his mind? This week, when you get to the end of chapter 25 of 2 Kings, you're gonna get this little epilogue. It kind of feels misplaced. It feels kind of weird when you read about it but it's the story of King Jehoiakim who came after Manasseh and he was captured just like three months into his reign. He's taken into captivity by the Babylonians and he's held there for 37 years. And after 37 years, the text tells us this, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. Now, you might read that this week and go, cool, 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 good for him. Everyone else is in exile, he's dining with the king. Good for him. But the author includes this, I believe, for a reason. This is a, a glimmer of hope to the nation of Israel. Because while they haven't kept up their end of the covenant and have since been carried into exile, God is still keeping his. And proof, there's a remnant of the Davidic line who is not dead. In fact, he's feasting with the king. There's hope for the throne still. And then if you want some more good news of God's grace, you go to 2 Chronicles, which if you've ever read through the Chronicles in a Bible reading plan, you're like, that's a tough book, pastor. In fact, I read it and I think, didn't I already read all this stuff already in like Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings? Why am I rereading this stuff? And the answer is yes and no. You have and you haven't. Because while 1 and 2 Kings were written to explain while Israel, why Israel was carried off into exile, 1 and 2 Chronicles are written to Israel as they're coming out of exile. And it's written to remind them of where they've been and to reground them in the promises of God. And so it's answering the question, is there hope for us? And we get to 2 Chronicles 33 and we read this of our old friend Manasseh, a detail about his life that we don't get in 1 and 2 Kings. It says this, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the kings of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. <clears throat> then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And so while judgment was still impending for the nation, Manasseh was met personally with God's grace and mercy as he repented of his idolatry and sin and turned to the Lord. And if you're like me, when I read this, I'm like, him? This guy's the worst, man. Really? And the Bible would say, yeah, him. Even the worst sinner. 
God's grace is sufficient to cover even the worst sinner. And so what about you? Like if the wrath of God is aimed at sinners, unholy, rebellious people like me, what good news or what hope do I have? Well, Romans 5 tells us this, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And then John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And then 1 John 2.2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Like the New Testament is full of these passages shouting out the same message to us, which is this, that God sent his son Jesus, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, He was perfect, he was holy, he was guiltless, he was righteous before God as he lived his entire life in perfect obedience to his father. And then he went, he suffered and died as he was crucified on a cross. He came back three days later so that in his life, death, and resurrection, all who would come to him in faith would have the wrath of God aimed at them, appeased in the person and work of Jesus. Which means this, church, if you are in Christ, there's no more wrath for you. Our holy God has poured out his wrath upon the Son for you. So that you can experience abundant life in Christ even today. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can slay your sin while simultaneously living in the peace of God that you have in Christ. Not so that you can escape his wrath, but because Christ has already taken it in full for you. You have his peace. Not so that you can work your way out of being an enemy of God, but because he's already called you a child and a friend. Paul tells us in Ephesians that while we may not feel holy and while we may not always be walking in holiness, we are holy and blameless before our Father because we are in Christ Jesus. His holiness is ours. His righteousness is ours as our unrighteousness became his. So do we remember the holiness of God? Yes. Do we we strive to kill the sin in our lives? Yes, but we do so with the knowledge that God's wrath for me has been poured out in full upon his beloved son so that today and forevermore I can live in his perfect holy presence as a participant in that divine dance of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm up in there because of Jesus. So the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, in Christ, I get to do that. Like in Christ, you get to do that. In Christ, we get to experience the Father's love poured out on us because his wrath, which was aimed at me, has been poured out on Jesus. And because of his grace and mercy and because I've been indwelt with his spirit, we can glorify him and enjoy him as we were created to do. And so here's where I wanna kind of end. Listen, there's a day coming when Christ will return and he will judge the living and the dead. And all who have lived their lives apart from him will have to endure the wrath and judgment of God. And it will be severe in a way that makes what's happening in 2 Kings look like child's play. And it will last forever. While those who are in Christ will be welcomed into his presence, will be welcomed into paradise, 
Well, they will get to enjoy eternity with the Father because of the Son. There will be no sin. It'll just be full of Jesus. And my appeal to you, if you do not know Jesus, is this, come to him now. Like even where you are, just say, you know what? <laughs> like I'm kind of new to this. I don't really know, but here's what I know, that you're holy and I'm not. You're perfect and I'm a sinner and I need your grace. Jesus, will you forgive me? Help me, save me. And, and even in that simple prayer, in that moment, the wrath of God, like that, that you were now under, you were taken out of because of Christ. So if you don't know him, come to the Father. And then my appeal to those who've already received God's grace is this. Do not forget the holiness of God. Fight your sin, kill it mercilessly. Give it no room, no foothold, no stronghold in your life. Slay it. And as you do, rest, knowing that there is no condemnation for you because of your position in Christ. That there is nothing, height, depth, things seen, unseen, present, to come. I mean, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He is jealous for his glory, church, and he is jealous for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a holy and jealous God. We thank you that you alone are God And we confess even now, God, for those of us who know you, we confess even now that we are so prone to be distracted, to to have things, (laughs) idols of our hearts, maybe not images in front of us, but things in our hearts that steal our attention and affection away from you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us to kill those things, to repent of that idolatry, to walk in grace, to walk in holiness, to walk in the freedom that you've offered us. God, we thank you that you're a gracious and merciful God, that the wrath that was aimed at us for those who are in Jesus as your children, we know we've come up, on, we've come up from, from underneath that. And now we get to live in your presence today, tomorrow, and forevermore. God, we love you. We thank you. We ask Holy Spirit now that you would just help us as we continue to sing and worship, direct our eyes, our minds, and our hearts upon the beauty and the majesty of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.